welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we've got a review of The Last Temptation of Christ, followed by Jake's recap of Week 10 of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... All right, folks, we're going to be discussing The Last Temptation of Christ this episode because while both Chris and I were able to see silence, it is no longer showing on any screens in our area, and I'm not really sure a whole lot of others, so it probably makes sense to... Yeah, closest, when I checked closest I could find was Dallas, and that was, at the time this is out, a week ago. Right, so and unless you um, unless you plan on going to Dallas from where you're listening uh, here in the Midwest, probably just better to do The Last Temptation of Christ. However, speaking of last, let's talk about another last in the in the uh, kind of cultural vortex right now. That being Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. Chris, how immaculate, do you feel? Immaculate segue there, Hunter. Yeah, th- thank you very much. How do you feel about The Last Jedi as a subtitle? I I like it. I like it quite a bit. You know, it's it's maybe not quite as good as the original title, Space Bear. Uh, which is the the moniker that they were shooting under, just before. throwing on there, yeah, yeah. Um, it, they they do this, or they've been doing it with with each one, um, each at least each of the new Star Wars movies. I can't remember what Han Solo is. It's red something right now. Well, what? Yeah, what oh, they'll maybe do? Maybe it's it, Red Cup. I think it's Red <laughs> Cup. I you just there you go. There red you Solo go. Cup. Wow. Okay, that, it all makes see. sense now. I, there you go. Because what they'll do is they'll give alternate titles just so people in the area won't feel right. inclined to go after it. Um, so the last Jedi, what whenever I saw the logo, it occurred to me that they are deliberately going for concise titles, three word titles, just to fit into the new logo format. Because you see Star Wars and then mm-hmm. the title in, in between, that kind of bugs me. That I can understand it from a branding perspective. But that kind of bugs me that they're limiting what the potential titles could be just so it can fit into that logo format. So you want something more like The Empire Strikes Back? Is that? Here's the thing is I will, I am glad or, it, or maybe it, war starts at midnight. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad it what Star Wars starts at midnight. I'm glad it wasn't the rise of the return of the son of yeah. any of those other cliches. But I kind of like a pulpy title like Empire Strikes Back, The Phantom Menace. Those are really solid pulpy titles. I, I like The Phantom Menace as well. We we differ with Jake on this, uh, which but and, Jake and he's is wrong. wrong. Yeah, he's yeah, wrong. He's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I like the last Jedi. I think, I think it's provocative. I think it's, um, I think it's a, a, a very solid title, albeit maybe a little predictable at this point. But, um, I, I made this point with you when we were sort of discussing with Jake. I think it is a, if, if the last Jedi was perhaps the title of the second star Wars film. So you had star Wars and then you had the last Jedi that would have been a great title back in what 1980 and you were saying as a replacement for empire strikes back no well as as not as a replacement for the title of empire strikes back but if if the second star wars film had been titled the last jedi and it was its own entirely different thing i think you would have liked it better i think i think it would you would look at it as a classic now um i i think it falls in line with a lot of what lucas was paying homage to with you know old samurai pictures and that sort of thing um it it's it's very concise, but it's very to the point. It's a little dark. I I really like it. Um, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. it. Feels a little anodyne to me. I would I would like it. One thing that I like about those pulpy titles is is the the syntax for again Empire Strikes Back or the Return of the Jedi. I know I said I didn't like uh, Return or Revenge of the Sith. Things like that. The Last Jedi. Just even the word last. Just that single syllable just seems kind of bland. 
pulp titles usually go a bit over the top. So if it was the final Jedi, the, the yeah, I would even like the final the, Jedi, the penultimate Jedi. Yeah, the pen, well, no, because it's not second to last. <laughs> I, I know, I know, but but the penultimate that that was the joke. But is it would have been even less like, absent, absent knowing what the story is about per se. I, I I I can't say exactly, but if the story is just if they're just trying to be okay. provocative, I do think the final Jedi would have been better. Okay, hot take, hot take here. Oh, hot take time. Um, what if Jedi is plural? Oh, I, I bet it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. So, I don't. I don't think that this is going to be so on the nose. It's just okay that at the very end, all the Jedi's are dead or something like yeah. that. It, there, there's going to be some nuance to it. I expect they're just trying to be provocative at this point. What is it? Uh, twelve months out. We're not even that now. Yeah, we're in. We're in February. When, yeah, whenever it was released. Tw- yeah, twelve months out. Uh, but no, I'm. I'm. Uh... I'm optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about everything with, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, sure the movie, I'm sure the movie um, would be just fine. I'm just not not what, mad about the title. What about, what about they made Star Wars red? Hmm. Instead of, they, they made Star Wars oh, that, red. Oh, yeah. No, of, that's it. Well, uh, you, th- you think that means something, too? No, I don't think that means something. I just, like, there was a lot of fanboy, like, oh, my gosh. And there, there, there's speculation as a consequence of it. And I, I think it looks nice. You know, it's obviously in some way a, a nod to revenge of the Jedi, mm-hmm. um, the original title and the original, uh, lockup of, of that logo. But, um, I, I think it looks nice. I, I don't think it's necessary. Like it, it's neither, that's neither here nor there for me, but, uh, it's all right. It also tells me that they're very much divorcing this trilogy from the prior ones because the prior ones which is what this needs yes yes and no from a branding perspective yes and no because when the original trilogy there was really no set format as far as how the titles went there was with episode one two and three wherever episode was great big right and now they're going for the format where again once again it's star wars with the title in the middle and so again i just think that that limits you i don't know if i agree i i think return of the jedi and empire strikes back have a very similar stacked blocky uh look to them but not to this degree and certainly not to the degree that episode one through three was you're you're saying it's more just like cut and paste like mm-hmm. like we need hit to t- the, hit the text no exactly delete, force awakens made so much money it had a good logo let's let's follow that format i'm i'm fine with that for for these three and then we'll see where you know we'll see where it goes star, star wars episode 30 32 yeah what, what they're gonna do with that um, all right. Well, that's what how Chris and I feel about The Last Jedi, but we want to know how you feel about The Last Jedi. Let us know at the greatest title ever, Hello at War Starts at Midnight.com. And folks, stick around because coming up next, we've got our review of Martin Scorsese's 1988 film, The Last Temptation of Christ. Rabbi, can I talk to you? I'm not like these other men. I mean, they're good enough. They're they're good men, but they're weak. One's worse than the other. Where'd you find them? Look at me. If I love somebody, I die for them. If I hate somebody, I kill them. I could even kill somebody I loved if they did the wrong thing. Did you hear me? Do you understand what I said? Yes, I understand. The other day you said if a man hits you, you turn the other cheek. I didn't like that. Only an angel could do that. Or a dog. I'm sorry, but I'm neither. I'm a free man. I don't turn my cheek to anyone. We both want the same thing. 
You do? You want freedom for Israel? No. I want freedom for the soul. No. That's what I can't accept. That's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. First you free the body, then you free the spirit. The Romans come first. You don't build the house from the roof down. You build it from the foundation up. The foundation is the soul. The foundation is the body. That's where you must begin. No, if you don't change the spirit first, change what's inside, then you're only going to replace the Romans with somebody else and nothing ever changes. Even if you're victorious, you'll still be filled with the poison. You've got to break the chain of evil. How do you change then? With love. As Hunter mentioned at the outset, we originally intended to dive headlong into a discussion of silence this week. But since Martin Scorsese's epic tale of Christian persecution in 17th century Japan is already retreating from the box office, we decided to postpone that review until Midnight Warriors can actually see it. So instead, we're taking this opportunity to revisit another faith-based epic from Scorsese's catalog, The Last Temptation of Christ. Based on Nico Kazantzakis' book of the same name, this fictionalized tale of the Gospels sparked controversy long before Single Frame was even committed to celluloid. Pinned by taxi driver screenwriter Paul Schrader, the film stars Willem Dafoe as Jesus Christ. But instead of presenting an immaculate and divine savior, Last Temptation focuses squarely on the fully man aspects of the Son of God. And in doing so, Scorsese almost certainly commits a form of sacrilege and presents it to the world at 24 frames a second. Yet the Catholic-raised Italian-American auteur, who once aspired to become a priest himself, did not set out to be a rabble-rouser who sparked protest or offended the delicate sensibilities of good, honest Christians. His intent was to explore the aspects of Jesus Christ that had been hinted at in Scripture, but had never been represented on the big screen. So Hunter, I'm curious. Blasphemy and controversy aside for a moment, was Scorsese successful in opening your eyes, your heart, and your mind to a new perspective on the story of Jesus Christ? And furthermore, how do you feel this pairs with Marty's latest exploration in spirituality? A couple of reviews of Silence stood out to me. One said that you do not so much like this movie or dislike it as is you experience it and then there's a before and after. Another review of Silence said that this isn't so much a movie but a two and a half hour long prayer. I think both of those are helpful descriptions of The Last Temptation of Christ likewise. This isn't so much a movie you either like or dislike, you you just experience, and then afterwards you're, you're changed as a viewer. Mm-hmm. However, I would not say that this is a two-and-a-half-hour-long prayer so much as this is a two-and-a-half-hour-long meditation. That's fair. As, as, you pointed, as you pointed out, as you, t- as you touched on a little bit, this is blasphemous, and I will post uh, a link to an article that goes, goes into great, greater description than I will. This is blasphemous, not for the reason it's usually thought of as being blasphemous, the last temptation scene. That's not the blasphemous part. What makes this blasphemous is it uses Christ as a metaphor for the religious experience as opposed to the destination of the religious experience. Okay, so just for a moment— Blasphemy and controversy uh, aside. aside. Well, okay, no, comma. So it's blasphemous because of that reason, comma. However, as a film, like I said, it's it's not it's not a boy. That was a good movie. I I sure enjoyed that movie. It was you take it in. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's um it's like it's like sitting there and smoking peyote in the middle of the <laughs> desert, going on a vision quest. That's what this movie is. It's a vision quest. That's that's actually an interesting kind of description of it because i feel like most scorsese films um you they they may be tough to endure at times he has he has difficult challenging characters but 
um, you still like, or at least for me, I, I get on board with, I get where, where it's going. This feels a little more. And I, I watched it a second and third time preparing for this once watching the film and once kind of listening to commentary. Um, it, it, it feels more like a, almost like a PT Anderson movie to me in the way that it flows. That's the, the structure is, um, especially with a story that, you more or less know the gospel of, of Jesus. And this is not this, it, you know, it even says up front, this is not presenting the gospel of the Bible, but right. it's a fictionalized account to explore the humanity of Jesus. What that the conflict between been. the spirit and the flesh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, you know, the, it's, it, it does, I guess, stand out as a Scorsese film in, in that there is a, um, a bit that there's a little less to grasp onto, I guess it is more an experience, um, but I, I think there's, it, it connects to a lot of what he, uh, especially what he was doing in early filmmaking. I mean, Ebert, Ebert pointed out in, he went back and revisited this and right. even, I think maybe the same, the same article that you're right. That's no, Ebert um, said as much as he said that after reading this article, I, I can I have no choice, but to conclude that this is indeed blasphemous, but I still like the movie is yeah, what he said. And yeah. that's how I feel. And, but he kind of framed it as, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the same vantage point as, as he took with some of his early films, like who's that knocking at my door and, uh, mean streets where it's, it is very driven by religion. Um, and, and by this sort of heady cerebral, uh, inner turmoil, mm-hmm. um, exploration of it, but it's not, it's not what you would think of as a religious film by any stretch of the imagination, partially because it's dealing with a lot of fiction. Right. And so what makes it good as a, as a cinematic spiritual experience is likewise, what makes it blasphemous Mm -hmm. is that again, you're not supposed to relate to Christ. You're supposed to want to be like Christ and that's supposed to be the destination. So, so, so again, it, it, that, that's almost the conflict of watching this is Mm -hmm. just, is what makes it good likewise or what makes it, enjoyable and experience, et cetera, is likewise it makes it blasphemous. Um, but there are some parts of it that I think are, you know, stick to your ribs as far yeah. as religion is concerned and will probably always stick with me. One being the line wherever they say you have to go to the desert. He is a God of the desert. I love that. I, I, I just, I absolutely love that part. And then likewise, the moment whenever they're asking him, you know, why are you here now? Why is the law not good enough? And he, and Jesus says, because I, Maybe God just finally feels that our hearts are ready for more. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think applies now is people might say, well, it's been 2000 years. Where is he? Could you say our hearts are ready for more? I can't. Yeah. I, I don't. If, if there is something else we need to hear, I don't think we're ready to hear it. Yeah. And so I love that line. Well, it also it also functions as a, a great. And that's that's something that I, I really like about the way that and I think it's it's a gosh, I'm going to really butcher if I try to Kazantzakis. Kazantzakis. Um you, it's, don't it's, don't try and pronounce it. Just let it just let it flow. Yeah. Kazanzakis. Uh, it's you know I know some of it is text lifted directly from or, or dialogue lifted directly from the book, mm-hmm. but also Schrader and um, I believe also Jay Cox mm-hmm. was he's not credited on this, but in the interim between eighty three and eighty seven, when the film kind of began false starts and then actually got made, Cox helped kind of doctor up a little bit. Um, but there, there's something to the way that uh, Scorsese takes these very, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount or uh, the the wedding or those those things where there are there are sort of things where you're sort of you're waiting, you're expecting 
lines of to come from Jesus. And instead of that, he gives you uh, a colloquial right, Jesus. And, and, and I like that for two reasons. One, it's, um, it feels a little more engaging because it's, you're not just sitting waiting for, oh, okay, now this is where he says, this is where he says, says this little piece. This is where, I mean, maybe, maybe the last supper is the closest you get. It, um, it, it forces you to reacquaint yourself with the meaning of the lines, not necessarily the phrasing of the lines. Right. Well, and, and that's, I think my biggest takeaway from, from this, um, is and I'm I'll say I I really enjoy this film, but it definitely it's it's uneven in places. Um, and for me, it recovers from that every time. But there there are there are times when I'm I get a little uneasy with either the representation of Jesus or just the way the story kind of all comes together. Right. Um, but it it did really make me reassess exactly what the actions and the words of Jesus would have meant to someone at the time, the immediacy of, and the radical nature of, of what, what was, of what, what was being doing. said. Yeah. The, the most, uh, the most, the, the example that pops into my head is the stoning of the prostitute in mm-hmm. this, in this case, they present the prostitute as Mary Magdalene being yeah. stoned. So we, it's ingrained in our heads, the line being let he was not sent cast for stone. They yeah. change it to, which one of you hasn't sinned? And Jesus getting up in their face with a stone saying, which one of you hasn't fi- yeah. sinned? If you haven't sinned, throw a rock at her, you yeah. know, something like that. So I'm of two minds about casting a whole bunch of New York actors with thick New York accents and then placing them in the Middle East and using that colloquial. Cause I absolutely agree with you. It forces us to reacquaint ourselves with the meaning of the lines. But at the other hand, it, I can see how it dates this. It doesn't do that for me. But I can see how for a lot of other viewers that turns them off because I've tried to show this movie to other people. Mm. Well, and and that's what turns them off, really. And it is it is a barrier to entry for sure. I mean, Harvey Keitel with his weird. Everybody in Jerry curls. Yeah. And um, and and he's definitely the most like he's got this sort of I don't know if it's Bronx or Brooklyn. Right. Sort of swagger to he's 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 playing Harvey Keitel in a way in, in the way that he's delivering. Um, stuff. It's, it it is a barrier to entry. The thing, the thing that I, I think if you can get over it though, I appreciate is this is not Scorsese is not saying this is the story of Christ. This is the ultimate, this is what you should. It's, it's sort of this supplementary further exploration of, um, of an aspect that you don't see on screen very often. I, I do think at times he goes maybe a little too far with it. And then the source material goes too far. Do you have examples far. where you... Um, I mean, the thing that bothers me probably the most is the relationship with Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Um, it it feels like a bit of a... Um, where a lot, of, a lot of the things that I enjoy about this film is the way that it allows me to reconnect and and view things from a different vantage point. Uh, I feel like that relationship only solely or, or mostly feels like it's a way to kind of bridge the idea that cousin has started with and where he wanted to end it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Right. I mean, there's the same thing with the relationship with Judas, like the, I feel like creating this sort of, uh, conspiracy they're they're co-conspirators you know mm-hmm. him, him and jesus are um jesus basically convinces him this is what you have to do he has to it, die judas has to betray him it's how it, it has feels to be. it feels like a cop-out to the larger 
uh, message of what happened there. Right. And so in many ways, that's that's a pretty good point as far as any attempt to fictionalize fictionalize the gospel or for that matter, fictionalize any type of mythology. It's it's what I call putting Hamlet in space (laughs) to try and make it your own. I don't care for that because if you just mine what is there and be true to what is there, that is richer than whatever you can fictionalize. mm -hmm. And so I think what you provided there, those examples are evidence of that. And, and that's, I've been, I've been thinking on this a lot over the past week, week and a half. And I, I'm, I'm sort of a, of two minds about I'm, I am glad that Scorsese made this picture, but it doesn't necessarily feel like, the type of picture that had to be made. And I, and and he's, I mean, I think his career is peppered with those throughout, you know, most people think of him as sort of a gangster or a street Mm -hmm. sort of, but I mean, he's got a lot of stuff in his career that is a one-off or, or, uh, you know, goes off on a, a little tangent. I, I like the fact that he made a biblical epic. Um, and I, I wonder if he had done the same approach, but, taken a more direct gospel um, uh, adaptation of the gospels, if it would have been just as fulfilling. I I doubt it. Well, okay. Well, as far as the gospels, I can't answer that, but I will say this is that in the early eighties, this was supposed to be made in the early eighties. Yeah. 83, 83. And um, apparently Robert De Niro didn't want to do it. He was set to be Jesus. Didn't want to do it. So Scorsese got Aiden Quinn. He was going to be. Well, um, I think, I think it was more, it was a, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was. It, it wasn't. He wasn't like signed, sealed, delivered. Right. We're going to. But, but he, he, he had talking he had, to him. He had bukus of money to make this. It was going to be the King of Kings, and you know, yeah, a big yeah. biblical epic. And then the script got leaked, or story it got leaked. What this is about, and so the protest. That's when the protest yeah, first yeah. began, and so we wound up making this for a, a scant budget in the I, late seven 80s. million dollars yeah, in eighty eight. Basically yeah. nothing in in the late eighties. And in many ways, I think the limited budget benefited this because, as you pointed out, this is this is very much a down and dirty, mm-hmm. radical kind of approach. And, okay, so that's that's an interesting. I, I I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And I guess what I what I was saying about a more um, direct my my question was less about the execution. No, yeah, the gospels, the actual, but gospels. but just using the gospels as a source instead of instead of the book. But I, I think you are absolutely right in the way that you know using the hell out of the settings that they had available because mm-hmm. they didn't have many and and finding creative ways to shoot around, not having like when the centurions come in and uh, raid the, the temple. He said that they had five guys Mm -hmm. and so they couldn't have them surround the temple. So they just used whip pans and had the same five guys show up and that made it work. And it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant sort of piece of, I think he even says, you know, something I learned from Corman. Mm -hmm. It's a brilliant piece of creative filmmaking that he may have not otherwise had. So I think that actually was a blessing in disguise in, in, you know, creating, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I just wonder, and this is such a, you know, who knows, but I wonder had he approached the acting style and everything the same way, but a more direct uh, biblical story, if it would have been as as powerful as parts are for me and then even more. See, I don't, I will say I do not think so because if anything, Martin, I'll say this, anytime he gets $100 million to do an epic, I'm thinking of things like The Aviator or The Wolf of Wall Street, it's about not very good guys. Mm-hmm. And so I think Martin Scorsese, if anything, has gotten more pious as he's gotten older. 
And I don't think he would want $100 million to explore Jesus's personality because he wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. I, I almost feel like he doesn't feel he has the right to do well, that I, anymore. And, That's and, why he made silence instead. Right. These are these in silence. Those are priests. Those are not Jesus. I don't think he would feel right trying to do that. Well, but I'm not I'm not saying now I'm saying Even in, in 83. Well, and he wasn't there yet. He wasn't um, the, in his head. He wasn't there as a. He wanted to. He wanted to explore the human aspect yeah, more. That's that's true, and, and that's that's something that Ebert brings up. I think in both mm-hmm. reviews is this is sort of uh, it's it's as autobiographical or as adjacently autobiographical as a lot of early Scorsese was. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of you. You feel a lot of his inner conflict and turmoil going on here. He even equates. Uh, not Jesus to being Martin Scorsese, but Judas and Jesus being the film mm-hmm. um, in, I think it's the last paragraph of his, his sort of revisit, which is um, I'll, I'll link to both of those reviews in the show notes as well. Um, uh, I, I, I like his analysis of it. The first one is sort of just a, just defending the film because just it was a review, so, yeah. well, it was, it was so, it was right in the middle of everyone protesting mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. But um, I, I think it does, it does feel like a very, personal film, which a lot of early Scorsese does. Um, so maybe, maybe you're right in that aspect as well. He is, he has certainly changed and evolved and grown. Like, I don't think he could not have made silence in the eighties. There's no way like silence is a much more mature is a much more, uh, methodically. He could have, but it would have been more like the seventies silence. If anyone's ever seen that, the one that was made in the early seventies, the one in the early seventies, I would say is a little bit more cynical than this okay. new one. Okay. So if he did make it to be more like and, that. Well, and that's the thing, that's the thing about silent is it's like, it is, it is a feast of, uh, spirituality and emotional and, and just like the trying, trying to reconcile exactly what a personal relationship with God is and means. And, um, it's, it's a beautifully gorgeous film. I, I, really look forward to talking about yeah, this. Chris Hopefully. and I are chomping at the bits too. <laughs> we do not want to remain silent on silence, but, uh, but we want to talk about it when you can actually see right. it. So it's, it's looking like probably April. Yeah. We'll try to get around um, to it. You, we've talked a lot about Martin Scorsese appropriately enough. I think this has some of his best camera directing, some of his best editing. However, to me, the true hero of this film is Peter Gabriel. We don't yeah. usually talk a whole lot about Martin Scorsese's composers. Peter Gabriel, for one, just from a cultural aspect, this introduced world music to the, in many ways, to the larger culture. I mean, but, you could say the Talking Heads, but okay. But well, okay, Talking Heads and Jesus <laughs> introduced world music, but the music in this, it much this makes it. This is what makes it a meditation. Mm-hmm. The music just does. If you are eliminated. It would not be what it is. How good is that final? I don't know if you, you the remember. Dun, dun, yeah, the those, dun. The, yeah, those kind of handbells or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Like, just it's it's a perfect. It is the perfect conclusion to this really gut wrenching sort of personal story. A few, and sound, it, a and few it, sound cues. The the opening, the feeling begins. The mm-hmm. da 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 mm-hmm. da da. That's that's magnificent. The um when it when, uh, the on go, the march to golgotha the way of sorrows yeah, yeah i mean i i have the album on my ipod and listen to it all the time completely divorced from the film yeah how much i like it um what's interesting you mentioned the um it is accomplished that sound cue which is absolutely magnificent but that that moment i'm sure you've heard of this but for those who haven't the the film breaks yeah. off and burns off in that that was an accident yeah that was in camera that yeah, was that, a they they 
could have lost the shot. Exactly. They could have lost the shot, but it wound up burning at the exact right moment and it makes well, it work. And how bizarre it, because if you, I, I knew that after watching it the first time, like, you know, 10 plus years ago. Um, so I was waiting for it this time. And it's amazing how, like, it feels like it happens on cue. Like he, he says it is accomplished. It is accomplished. He kind of moves, closes his eyes and then bam. And then, and then it's like the film can't even contain yeah. what's the mon- the monument of what's happening. Um, one part that hasn't aged well to me is Willem Dafoe's performance. You think? No. Well, it's one of those things. He's doing what he's told to do, what the script tells him to do. And so maybe that it just goes back to my issues with this from a blasphemy perspective is, again, he, he's not supposed to. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But the idea of just Jesus writhing and just he, being completely in spiritual conflict, it, even though even if William I, Defoe's is doing what his yeah, job I is, it's I not. Don't know if, I don't know if that's a Defoe. Like, I think I think Defoe actually handles some pretty tricky mm-hmm. some some things that on paper are difficult are like could feel even more blasphemous if that's if that's possible right. in, in a poor performance. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he doesn't necessarily recover that feeling, but he, he does bring the right human element um, that is necessary for the story to work at all. Um, I, I find it to be like, it's not what you expect of Jesus. And so there is, there is that to overcome. Um, and if you, if you embrace the fact that this is fully headlong, not about um not about the divine Christ. Mm-hmm. It is fully about the human. And that's, and that's where, you know, a lot of this blasphemy right. that's, that's comes the, in is like, purpose. it's, uh, it, it's not even addressing that, but from the human aspect, um, of, of the, and the sort of trying to, as he's trying to, uh, you know, figure out exactly how this all works. I, I found it very, uh, convincing, very well, very emotional and very empathetic. Um, which, I mean, maybe that's the wrong thing that you want for, well, then I'll put it, then I'll put it this way is even within the context of this film, I'm not sure this is a Jesus that would have many followers. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's to, to that, like, I like the radical aspect of the way that he, you know, the, the summer on the Mount. I, I love that moment in sort of, it all just sort of comes out of him. It's almost Mm -hmm. a, um, it's, it, it's as if, and, and maybe, maybe the, the right way to sort of view this is it's as if the fully human, fully divine are divorced from each other. They aren't communicating, but they are both like, that's, that's almost the, the way mm-hmm. that it approaches and, and the way that, um, he sort of comes up and, and he goes from being this, this figure who isn't quite sure what he what his purpose is, but then it becomes fully evident when he just starts talking and it's not even, he's not even sure these are his words. They're just coming out of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought he handled it very well. And I could see why, uh, why he would gather followers, why he, you know, there's, I, I think, I don't remember if it was Scorsese or Schrader in the commentary said, you know, they sort of wanted him to feel a little bit like a revivalist preacher at times. Um, you know, kind of that, the the getting people to you know kind of start up mm-hmm. and i think i think you've i don't you know can, i i felt it no yeah i mean <laughs> well it, it's not it's not black and white you know what i mean it's not no he didn't do it, it, mm-hmm. it you're wrong it's not that it, it, it didn't it, work for you yeah it, it, yeah, yeah I, it, if if i were sitting there listening to him i wouldn't buy it okay you That's, know 
but and but he, he didn't it didn't because i love willem dafoe i think he's great mm-hmm. i'll watch him in anything except for a laws von Trier movie but i'll watch him in anything <laughs> um but in this it, it 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 almost didn't seem like even whenever he was speaking even when he had a crowd that he believed what he was saying and i think that's essential okay that's i i see that i guess the the other thing is they um, they were pretty intentional about making, you know, like, like the Sermon on the Mount, like, uh, a, a lot of the places where he is speaking, it's a fairly small, it's a, you know, they're, they're thinking being, these are remote areas until he gets, um, until he gets, you know, into the big city. Um, the crowds are probably going to be fairly, mm-hmm. fairly small and intimate. And so I think there also is something to, uh, the, the approach to like this guy, this guy comes out of nowhere and he's, you know just radical in the way that he is speaking in the way that he is approaching, um, approaching philosophy. I mean, that's the other thing is if you are, um, if you're an Israelite or if you're, you're a Jew at this time, um, this is pretty radical stuff as far as the way that he is speaking about my father and, and, and about love and about the more, how you intimate, treat, how you treat the, people as opposed to just strict adherence to the law. Yeah. Yeah. There's a more intimate nature to the way that he, um, he presents it as well. And, and I bought into it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe, so, I mean, maybe that's, and, so, and yeah, so there you go. Different strokes for different folks. I, I do wonder if maybe part of this is you, you know, you have a, uh, Catholic upbringing. I have a Methodist upbringing. I wonder if there is any sort of just difference in, in our approaches to, or it may just be the way we approach film because that's, that's certainly, I mean, yeah, I mean, cause, <laughs> cause I'm by the book yeah, yeah. in, in many ways, but that's, that's a very, that's a very Catholic. Yeah. And, approach. So, and so maybe that's, so maybe, maybe, maybe that's, they both, maybe, maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's all to, that's, that is the origin point uh, <laughs> for how, how we interact with everything. Um, all right. So Martin Scorsese was one time interviewed by John Favreau and John Favreau said, is this your magnum opus? And no, are we talking the Obama speechwriter or the, uh, the Iron Man director? Okay. Who is maybe the same person? <laughs> Have they ever been in the same room together? Um, but uh, Iron Man interviewed, Iron Man director uh, interviewed Martin Scorsese, asked him, do you consider this your magnum opus? And then Scorsese paused and said, it's my most incomplete film. So let's hmm. play a game, Chris Gallagher. Um, should he pull a Alfred Hitchcock and 30 years later remake this? I think it would be interesting to see. I think I think it would be a very different film. Um, just in the evolution of Scorsese and his filmmaking and his spirituality and his sort of view of the world. Um, I don't think so though. I, I like as much as I, as a viewer would be interested in, and, and as someone who, um, is, you know, mildly obsessed with, uh, film history and sort of the ebbs and flows of stuff. I I think it'd be very interesting to sink my teeth into, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, analyzing back and forth, but, I also don't think it's a film that he necessarily needs to remake. Like if that, like I, I just it's, don't it's solid. It's solid enough as well. It's, it's a, it almost undermines the, the film history in a way of it's not, it's not quite going back. You know, Scorsese has always said that once a film is done flaws, warts and all it, it's done. Mm-hmm. It stands as a testament to what it was. Um, I think if you, you then introduce the, recreation of it. it's not quite going back and making Greedo shoot first, mm-hmm. but it does. Um, it, it does sort of, you're, you're ultimately going to end up with, well, I like this one better than this one. And, and they, they start competing against each other, I think. Right. Which in, is in, not how he operates. Yeah. And, and so that's, uh, as, as a viewer, yes, I would love to see it as, as someone who loves what he does and his approach to it. I don't think it would be right for him. 
Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that there's that point, and then also what I brought up earlier is based on what I've seen in Silence, and actually it, in many ways some of his other films is he has grown much more pious mm-hmm. in his older age. The way Jesus is treated in Silence is much different than the one we see here. I don't think he's in the same headspace in any way, shape, or form so, to do it again. I'm glad you brought that sort of back up. In in the commentary, he mentioned that he he showed the film Last Temptation to. Um, one of his sort of mentors as when he was in high school, you know, a teenage kid, um, in, in the, uh, Catholic church, a priest. Uh, And, um, he, he told him, you know, Marty, your, your films all have the same sort of, I don't know if he said problem, but they're, they're all a little too much good Friday, not enough Easter Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, meaning that it's, it's all the struggle. It's all the turmoil. I think, I think he's sort of graduated to making more Easter Sunday sort of approach or, or view of the world. Right. And that's, I mean, he's still making difficult film. I think even silence is a difficult, it's not, it's not just spoon feeding you like, Oh, the, this great story of overcoming adversity in a, in a very tumultuous um, setting. It's, it's still, there's a lot to sort of wrestle with, mm-hmm. but the, the overall glaze of, of the worldview is a, bit uh more it, it's a, a bit less bleak I guess. right it, a bit less bleak and then i'd also just add that i don't think martin scorsese is in a place right now where he would feel comfortable as a believer putting jesus on the couch the last temptation of, the, of christ in many ways is psychoanalyzing jesus putting yeah. him on the couch and, and psychoanalyzing him and i don't feel like scorsese would be comfortable doing that so we'll transition to a different question you mentioned a, a director earlier so that's this might be your answer is there anyone who should remake this I don't think so. Or if there is, it's a, I mean, it, it's, it's such a delicate story to even attempt. And that's the thing. I, I, I don't know who I would put, who I would trust with it. I think Scorsese, well, you mentioned PT Anderson. Was that just, well, I, I meant in the, um, in, in the approach, it feels, it feels like the flow of the film feels like a PT Anderson film. Um, I don't know. Like, it doesn't, it's not the type of thing that I think Anderson would, would be interested in really, um, looking at like he, even, even when he focuses on a single character, it's in the, in this context of a larger, you know, family or group of people or or that sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. whereas this is, and maybe it's just the, uh, maybe it's just Scorsese's approach to it, but I, from what I kind of gather, it, it seems like it's the book as well. It's more about that, sort of flying solo or, or just, you know, it's just him and Judas and Mary mm-hmm. Magdalene are really the, the main characters you get. Um, it, my, my answer is no, I don't, I don't know of anyone off the top of my head. And I think the level of diff- difficulty is so high that it would take someone that I have immense trust in, not just as a director, but as, uh, you know, someone who could get that empathy, right. Um, it's, there's almost it's nobody sticky. good enough to, yeah. to handle well, this besides and, Scorsese. And that, well, and that's the thing is Scorsese, I, I don't think he did it perfectly. I think he did the best job he could have done at the time. You know, there's, there's a lot of qualifiers there, right. but the best job anyone could do. Um, and, 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 and it's still, it comes up a little short. Like it's, I, I, I do think it's a, it's a remarkable film in a lot of ways, but certainly not without problems. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, your favorite part, um, to be perfectly honest, I think my favorite part is the the moment that I mentioned earlier when the sort of the Roman guards um, raid the temple or raid the the, the city. Um, and before I even 
knew of the story of, well, we only had four guys. There was something to, you mentioned the camera work, you mentioned the editing. I think, um, both of those work very well in this film. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a godsend that Scorsese got Schumacher back at the beginning of the eighties, because I think this film would have felt, would have lost some of its immediacy. Um, and it's, and it's, uh, what, what's necessary for, you know, giving the feel of, of Jesus being this real radical, um, sort of presenting these radical ideas. And, but then there's also things in just the action where I, I think those two meld so well. And there's particularly these shots of, uh, these guards jumping down from, you know, they're like a story up mm-hmm. and it's almost this POV. You just see feet coming down. Um, you really feel like he's getting ready to get killed. Yeah, I mean, th- yeah. th- there's the urgency of th- what's going on here is very dangerous. Yeah. And that maybe, I mean, the other shot that is just, and I, I hope I don't steal this from you because it's fairly obvious, but when that shot where the camera is attached to the cross and it's going up mm-hmm. is just like, it, it burns into your mind and it's just a beautiful, like harrowing sort of, uh, image. My favorite Scorsese shots in general in this, but not just in this, but in general, are the ones that you completely don't expect. And so whenever he'll always do it, like if someone thrusts their hands out, he'll follow their hands. And, oh, and that happened in silence, too. Yeah. yeah. And it happened in this, too. Yeah. Is is it? I love that stuff because you, you never see it coming. Mm-hmm. And yet it, it always uh, seems to work. But my favorite parts, we already mentioned it. Feeling begins or excuse me, not the feeling begins. Um, It is accomplished. Yeah. And then another great Peter Gabriel moment is the uh, entrance into Jerusalem. Yeah. The music and that just it very, very uh, profound. Yeah. It's it, and that's the thing is like there's there is a lot to like here. There is like I think we I'm glad this wasn't a just a conversation about the controversy because that's, you know, sort of dull. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much there is so much to still dive into. And even if even if it doesn't all work like I, I appreciate that he made this film. It's a weird snapshot of a a time in uh, you know, both honestly, like Hollywood filmmaking and what it, you know, I'm not sure the film could be made today in the way that it was made 30 years ago. And then also in Scorsese's sort of evolution as, as a filmmaker and as a, as a man. So, uh, I, for me, I would say that this is probably one of my five favorite Martin Scorsese pictures. So that's how I feel about it as a Martin Scorsese movie. Just many things work. Some things don't, which I've already mentioned. And then as a, just a, as a theological emblem a theological piece of work i will concede that in many ways it maybe had to happen it, this this kind of stuff had to happen because if we go too far in the divine then eventually we'll just be completely divorced from it right and so even though this isn't quote the quintessential jesus yeah you almost have to amp up the human aspect just to balance it out it, exactly and that's like the the I, I think it's it's part of your collection of your understanding of Jesus. It is not it is not the thing that you say right. this is this is the Christ. It this, is this movie is the Protestant Reformation of of <laughs> pop, popular cultural portrays of Jesus. All right, is it balanced it out? Um, so speaking of balancing it out, Chris, um, next time you watch. The Last Temptation of Christ. What will you be drinking? Um, I I struggled to figure out exactly what I wanted to pair with this. Um, I thought about maybe going with a barley wine, just because you know it's not a wine, but it has wine in the name. Going that that sort of cheeky. I want another another cheeky route. You know, sometimes a lot of times I like to have some sort of connection beyond 
uh, just, I think it, you know, the flavor pairs, well, but you know, a, a title of a beer, sometimes a title of beer is all you really need to know. I want to try this. And maybe this is the case with this one. Um, I'm going with yet another beer from one of my favorite, uh, breweries. This time it is devil dancer, triple IPA from founders brewing company. Um, devil dancer is, as I said, a triple. So it's pretty high ABV, 12%, a biblical 12%, a biblical, 12%, a biblical number. And, a, and, and, and then coming in at IBU of 112. So a very, very bitter beer. <laughs> Um, I thought you were going to say a very, very biblical, (laughs) very, very very biblical. This is a biblical IPA, Um, but uh, you will be drunk for 40 days and 40 (laughs) nights after consuming. It's it's a I mean, I I think it honestly beyond the the, cheeky uh, pairing, I think it it pairs pretty well with my my feelings on this film as well. It's, um, you know, it, it has this floral fragrant um, sort of smell on it, but, you know, being a triple, it's very aggressive and bitter as well. It's sort of, um, it's, it's a beer that, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll say, well, this is a beer that you could have all night, or this is a beer that you only have one of, this is going to be one that you only want one of, like, this is going to sit with you in your palate for a while. Um, or you, you might need to, you might need to transfer over to like a stout afterwards, just to sort of balance out this, um, this very heavy, uh, aromatic, uh, bitter flavor it has. Um, if I were to chug this after losing a bet, oh what would happen to me? Um, well, it, I would, I would probably put it around the F five mm-hmm. as far as it's, um, it's because I think both of those are very well balanced, even though they are. And the F five is a hundred IBU or a hundred plus is what it says. This is 112. So it, it's pretty close there, a little higher ABV. So you might be even a little loopier. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although I will say this, uh, you know, would come in 12 ounce bottles where the, uh, F five was in a pint can at the time. Right. Um, they no longer make those, but, uh, so maybe it would be a little bit easier on you that yeah. way. Unfortunately, uh, founders actually retired this beer starting this year because they're bringing out a whole series of these barrel aged beers and they just don't have room for it. Um, and it was typically a summer seasonal. So, Good luck finding it. Um, if you can, I, I think it's definitely worth a try. I mean, sure, pair it, pair it with the Last Temptation of Christ. So um, it so it just wasn't very popular. Was the no? It it wasn't that. It was just they're they're literally bringing out like I think four or five new. Um, they're they're doing this barrel age series this year. Um, where they have, and I've I've recommended a lot of their barrel age stuff in the past. The uh, Backwoods Bastard, the KBS. Um, they're, they're sort of exploring that. And so they just needed to make room. And so this is one that got cut. It could be back sometime in the future, but this year they are not producing it. Do you think it warrants a protest? (laughs) No, no, it's, and that's the, like, it is a good beer. It is not a, it is not a divinely great beer. Um, it is, it is very good with some, it's a very human beer, not a divine beer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. It's, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it slaps you in the face. Uh, it doesn't turn the other cheek or it's (laughs) gosh. Okay. That's yeah. My recommendation for this is devil dancer, triple IPA from founders. If you can find it, grab it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, same with the last temptation of Christ, because it is currently available to rent on all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures or to own on the criterion collection, Blu-ray. So if you have seen it, we would very much love to hear your thoughts. 
please tell us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around, folks, because we will be back after the break with Jake's recap of Week 10 of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. Think I know what you want Think I know what you need I should be making you happy Lord knows I'm trying But the things you can't see time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash fantasymovieleague to sign up and get all the details. But let's dive into our recap of Week 10, which was perhaps the hardest week of award season yet. After Week 9, where the Perfect Cineplex brought in over $126 million, we turned to a week where the max was only $53 million. This was by far the most evenly matched week of the season. Hidden Figures ended up on top of about a seven-film struggle for Best Performer, all within 3000 bucks of getting the bonus. The race was so close. How close was it, Jake? The race was so close that Dirt Cheap Moana only needed about a thousand real world dollars more to get the best performer bonus. Wow. Yeah, I know. This means like one busload of kids could have swung the whole week. <laughs> so so lesson learned. If if you bank on a thirty one buck movie to win, uh go and see it yourself. Maybe bring bring the family because every ticket counts. That's insane. I know. And in our league, uh, School of Rock has returned back to the driver's seat. Uh, I'm assuming of a school bus where he brought everyone to see Hidden Figures. Uh, Distancing his lead over OPC Where Art Thou for our season. With only three weeks left to go, will his $11 million gap be enough to win? For those keeping track, that's right over about 1% difference in season gross between these two movie masters. Uh, Chris and I declined to comment on our paltry totals. Hey, I'm in the top 10, Jake. I mean, I'm in the top three, and I'm not going to win. Uh, yeah, it's, but... It's just not in the cards. You'll you'll get, like, a, a rub-on tattoo, a temporary tattoo. <laughs> That's your uh, prize. May, maybe you have some good posters you could send out. 
Ooh, we, we can talk about this later. Yeah. So my question for you, Chris, are you ready to trust this week's combo of franchises and bet it all on the Fifty Shades Darker Night Returns movie, colon, the Batman erotic romance film, colon, based on the fanfic of the novel Push by Sapphire? You you can't hear me blinking right now, but I'm I'm I, what? Uh, is that not the two franchises that got combined together? Fifty Shades of Grey and the Dark, I, <laughs> and, I, and and a whole bunch of a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm, I may um, have been getting a couple articles confused. I don't know. Uh, I I I have no idea what I once again. I am just now looking at this. I mean, it looks like. I mean, it looks like Fifty Shades has got to be uh, between those two. Has got to be your your bet, right? Because Lego Batman is really expensive. This you got to either really love Lego Batman, or you got to really think nobody's going to see Fifty Shades Darker. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will I, say this: this probably appeals to you, Chris. I was playing around, and you can do Lego Batman, five La La Lands, two monster trucks, and have zero dollars left. It's a zero dollar Cineplex. I don't think I've had a zero dollar Cineplex this entire season. I know hey, this this has been a weird season where you just leave leave screens blank. It's all going to be fine. That's really enticing. La La Land's back down again. I mean, I guess it's it's tapering off. But look, um, look at all the totals. If you're not going with a new release this week, which is uh, Lego Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, is that, is that uh, John, what it is? John Wick as well. Like and, I John Wick. Here's John Wick has a really solid cult following. I don't know what that translates into in like real world. Uh, you I know, don't, I don't know that revenue. I know a person who has seen John Wick. Really? I, I know a handful of people who have and all of them love it. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's the stealth play. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm just going to have to anchor with Lego Batman and hope that my one of these filler picks, you know, come through and get the bonus because yeah. everything else is under $100. Yeah. And. 10 films are under 50, which is, is just insane. And you have monster trucks floating down there with 10. They couldn't have had Moana still in here. I mean, maybe, maybe you should just go with eight resident evil and say, throw away all that. Like those other $600. Yeah. I mean, the thing is you could do, you could do. <laughs> I, I mean, I like the idea. I don't understand fantasy movie league that well. If you, if you saw my pick of six space between us last week. Yeah. What was that? What? Well, uh, did you see that trailer? I I did, but if you read my article, literally what I said is, I think this is going to do terrible, and I'm wrong about everything. So let's go with it. Uh, <laughs> it. It didn't have to do that much better than it did to be competitive, but it did really but, bad. But last week, what did? I mean, last week was a weird... I mean, I guess you, you can't chalk it all up to the Super Bowl, though. I don't know. No, I, I just think every... You'd think somebody would have released a big movie last week. Maybe people thought Rings was going to be big, but it just wasn't yeah. going to do well after Split came and, and did monster numbers. Yeah, I just, I don't know what to do this week. I never know what to do anymore. Um, Lego Batman would have been my obvious go-to. I think, it, I think it's going to do well, but at $795, that just seems like a big stretch. But um, uh, All right, here, here's the other know. take on it. It's... Essentially, Valent Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. This is essentially Valentine's Day weekend. Is everybody going out and see Fifty Shades Darker? I, I, it's, it's it's a spin on the weekend. I mean, it's a fair question. That, that's the best I can come up with. 
Um, and I'm really looking forward to writing my FML article this week because I get to use all kind of Fifty Shades Darker puns, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, are any of these going to converge with your uh, a dog's purpose puns? Um, not unless we want to get PETA involved. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, still need more FML in your life? Catch my weekly recaps and predictions each Wednesday on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take on the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAM Pod. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. Hunter, it is really rad recommendation time once again. Um, I don't even know where where you're going to go with this, and what do you have to recommend this this week? Well, Chris, my recommendation is a is a film about the gospel. Ironically, one of the best Jesus movies was made by a socialist atheist Italian. The Italian has nothing to do with it, but he was a socialist <laughs> and he was an atheist. And is the Gospel According to Saint Matthew, directed by Pier Apostle. Pier Paolo Pasolini. Yeah, okay, this is this is a movie that you've told me about before, right. and this this was your first sort of entrance. Is this the only Pasolini film you've seen? I don't know, but it's the only one that I can think of. What are some others? Uh, Sallow. Okay, he's uh, he did Sallow. Yeah, he's he's, he's a Sallow. So guy. exactly. I mean, this guy did Sallow. I've never seen Sallow. Uh, I want to kind of, but anyway, what I like about the Gospel according to Saint Matthew is it's just cinema verite with a capital C and a V. We, we talked about the um, the urgency and the run and gun kind of style of Last Temptation, mm-hmm. but even that had some big time Hollywood just uh, yeah. aspects to it. This does not. This is documentary filmmaking essentially. Well, and Scorsese actually cites this as a major, major influence right. in both the on the Criterion disc and sort of fil- supplemental films you should see, as well as in the commentary. He says like that was sort of our jumping off point for how we were going mm-hmm. to approach it. Right, and and Martin Scorsese puts a little bit more of a of a glisten onto onto the story than Pier Apollo did. And I like and I like Last Temptation better, but you should still see it just to see how this story can be told in a in in that style. I'm not spoiling the story, but I am spoiling in a little bit the way they did it. Is aspects of the Sermon on the Mount are filmed on a on a moving camera as Jesus is walking, and so he's looking behind and talking to his apostles mm-hmm. and telling them the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. which is not how we're used to seeing it. We're used to seeing it, you know, him him on a mount. Yeah. Um, but it, like like I said, it gives it a, a uh, an immediacy that much like much like some of the dialogue in Last Temptation does. It makes you reappraise what's being said and what's going on. 
Nice. Okay. This is, and we, we talked about this years and years ago and it was on my Hulu queue for, for a long time and never got around to it. I, I intended to get to it before we, we did this, um, just because it felt fitting and then finding out that it was an influence on him. Um, definitely going to check this out. Yeah. Gives it that much more. And then, um, another one, which, you know, I'm sure you can find anywhere, but I would encourage people to reacquaint themselves go back to because i imagine most of you haven't seen it at all and whenever or haven't seen it in 10 years and probably whenever you saw it you were in a different it was just a different experience because Mm -hmm. of the the culture surrounding but um the passion of the christ i think that that is certainly worthy of a rewatch just see where you are now see how you come to it i i haven't seen it since seeing it in the theater what was that 2003 i think was it okay. 2003 2004 um i and and so it's and it's that was a completely and that was just a completely different universe yeah, i think i yeah. feel like if you were to watch it now because i rewatched it recently i feel like if you were to rewatch it now you're going to watch it more as a movie okay. it's just a completely different <laughs> experience it's less it it's more trial by fire you know it's yeah. it's ha- having seen silence which you have just seen it's it's suffering Okay. It, 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 it's Mel Gibson. It's yeah, Mel Gibson. it's Mel Gibson. Yeah. Okay. Uh, where where can we find the Gospel According? The Gospel to Saint According Matthew? to Saint Matthew can be found at Amazon Prime, Tubi TV, or Fandor. And I'm sure there's some DVD available somewhere if you want to. Yeah, and I, I think you can stream it elsewhere as well. All right, Chris. So that is my selection. I obviously went biblical. Did you do the same? Are we going to see a Charlton Heston? picture recommended by yourself to this we, afternoon we are not we should we should talk at some point about uh my my relationship with ten commandments um as as a kid you know it's always on like around easter time you know actually um, that makes perfect sense <laughs> uh but no i went i went a whole another direction i i really use this as an excuse i found a way to use this as an excuse to talk about uh, a film by one of my favorite directors who i've mentioned quite a bit on the show i think i don't think anyone's going to be surprised that he is one of my favorite filmmakers, but, uh, haven't really, haven't really talked, uh, much about his films at length. Um, so I, I took the framing of, this is a film starring Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel. So uh, I decided to go with another film that they, they're not necessarily stars in, but they are featured Mm -hmm. actors in, and that is the Grand Budapest Hotel by, uh, Wes Anderson. Um, and this is a, this is a film that's very near and dear to my heart. It actually has, um, among other things, uh, a near direct reference to the title of this podcast. Uh, at one point, a narrator actually says not war starts at midnight, but war began at midnight. Um, and, and if you've seen, have you seen this film? Hunter? Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it has a lot of pal Pressburger sort of palette and touch to it. Um, a really, a really beautiful little, uh, portrait of, um, melancholy and suffering and humanity. Um, something, something that, uh, Wes Anderson has always toyed with, but I think is a little more, you know, we talked about how Scorsese sort of has evolved. I think, I think this is the most mature film Anderson has made in spades. And it's, it's the first film that he wrote alone that he didn't co-write with anyone. Um, uh, really beautiful also has great performances by Ray Fiennes and a whole slew of other people. Of course, Bill Murray shows up in it. Um, so I, I highly recommend it. Check it out. Um, not streaming anywhere right now, but you can still rent or buy it in the usual places. And, um, I think, I think you're really gonna like it. It's a delightful little hundred minute romp with, uh, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of weight and a little bit of heart as well. And that is a wrap for another episode of War Starts Midnight. Find us online at warstartsmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. And I will post, I, I just, in preparing for this review, um, 
finished up my, you know, one of my new New Year's resolutions last year was watch all Scorsese features. I just finished that up. I will, I, I am working on ranking them from best to worst. I will put that letterbox list in the show notes. So uh, check those as well at warstartsmidnight.com. I am deeply curious, Chris, what number one is. Well, you'll have to uh, go there and, and find out. All right. Uh, you can also say hello to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at WSAMPod. And if you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe to it on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan. And more importantly, it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck, while the spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash the Taylor Machine. And shout out to Roar for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at roarsongs.bandcamp.com. The Lego Batman movie is out in wide release this weekend, and we plan to discuss it right here in another fortnight alongside special guest and resident Batman buff, Joey Dale. So be sure to tune in. Same bat time, same bat cast. Thanks for listening, folks. Peace be with you. <laughs>